When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hiya, handsome. Come to join the party. Hey, party people. Welcome to the Patrama Party, where every night is emo night. And we like it like that, goddammit. So grab your, what? Your cone boob bra, a la Madonna. And let's strike a pose to the Smiths <laughs> or Fallout Boy or Tori Amos, whatever. Or a cute Vogue beat. Yes, yes. <laughs> or a cute Vogue beat. Yes. Um, I am your host, Remy Ramirez. And this is John Leasy. Say hi, John. Hey, y'all. Yay. He is a trauma therapist, and I'm so excited to have him on today. And in a minute, I'm going to ask you about your astrology. But real quick, um, just to kind of give y'all an overview, we're talking about healing from the effects of narcissistic abuse. Narcissism is a label that gets thrown around a lot. We use it when we talk about fuckboys, when we talk about parents, when we talk about bosses. So I wanted to start with a working definition that I found on WebMD in their mental health section about what what this is. So here's what they have to say. It says, narcissism is extreme self-involvement to the degree that it makes a person ignore the needs of those around them. While everyone may show occasional narcissistic behavior, true narcissists frequently disregard others or their feelings. They also do not understand the effect that their behavior has on other people, which by the way, side note, very frustrating, (laughs) very frustrating that they don't understand. It goes on to say, it's important to note that narcissism is a trait, but it can also be a part of a larger personality disorder. Not every narcissist has narcissistic personality disorder, NPD. As narcissism is a spectrum, people who are at the highest end of the spectrum are those who are classified as NPD, but others still with narcissistic traits may fall on the lower end of the narcissistic spectrum. People who show signs of narcissism can often be very charming and charismatic. Also very frustrating. (laughs) A little personal side note there. They often don't show negative behavior right away, especially in relationships. People who show narcissism often like to surround themselves with people who feed into their egos. They build relationships to reinforce their idea about themselves, even if these relationships are superficial. Then it says there, and I think this is so important. There are two different types of narcissism that narcissistic behavior can fall under. The two types can have common traits, but come from different childhood experiences The two types also dictate the different ways people will behave in relationships. So the first one is called grandiose narcissism. And it says people with this behavior were most likely treated as if they were superior or above others during childhood. These expectations can follow them as they become adults. They tend to brag and be elitist. 
Those with grandiose narcissism are aggressive, dominant, and exaggerate their importance. They are very self-confident and are not sensitive. So this, from what I can tell, is basically like the Trump type of narcissism. Then the second type is vulnerable narcissism. And it says, this behavior is usually the result of childhood neglect or abuse. People with this behavior are much more sensitive. Narcissistic behavior helps to protect them against feelings of inadequacy. Even though they go between feeling inferior and superior to others, they feel, sorry, they feel offended or anxious when others don't treat them as if they're special. Okay. End quote. So I know a certain amount about narcissism from reading that I've done on my own and from therapy, but I know there's a lot that I don't know. So Yay, John. <laughs> John is here to give us clarity. So John, officially, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited. Yay. And to get us started, why don't you tell me about your astrology? Do you know your sun, moon, and rising signs? Yes, I do. So I'm a Capricorn sun and a Libra rising and an Aquarius moon. Oh, Okay. Okay. So this is so interesting because you're a friend of Celesta's who, um, was the therapist I had on for our episode about chasing unavailable people. And you two have two out of three of the same signs. That is so wild. And maybe that's why I fucking love them. <laughs> yes. Celesta also has Capricorn and Aquarius, which I think is a really cool combo because, uh, it's very analytical and grounded yes. Aqu and Aquarius yes. is like, um, you know, it's an air sign. So it can like, it goes way into the future. It thinks really big picture. It's like really interested in these big concepts. And then Capricorn like brings it back into reality and into the now. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. Libra, Libra is so sweet and styly. We love. <laughs> Sounds like me. <laughs> Yay! Well, I'm so glad yeah. you're here. And I'm going to jump into my trauma on the topic. Feel free to jump in if you have thoughts or feelings or poems, whatever, or totally feel free to make yourself a, a fucking grilled cheese or whatever you want to do. <laughs> cool. And then, sounds good. Okay, cool. Okay. Then I'll, I'll turn back to you with questions at the end. All right. Okay, sweet. Um, Okay. So I'll start by saying that my mom has borderline personality disorder. We're pretty sure. And when I say we, that includes my mom and part of BPD is narcissism and an inability to sympathize and empathize with others. I will say this is something that as my mom and I have both grown and I've gotten clear about my boundaries and needs, my mom has also gotten a lot better about considering my experience too. But from an emotional standpoint, that was not part of the equation when I was growing up. So I talked about this story on a different podcast, but I think it's a good depiction of narcissistic abuse. So I wanted to start here. When I was 18, my boyfriend cheated on me. He was a big part of my friend group. And I won't go into those details, but it was fucking awful. All my friends knew. No one told me. I was totally blindsided. I fully trusted this dude, even though there were lots of red flags. I was very innocent at the time. Um, we'd been dating on and off since I was 15, and I really felt like he loved me. So blah, blah. You know, it was, it was a big deal. That happened during the summer. 
And then in the fall, I went to college and was honestly a fucking wreck at school. I developed an eating disorder as a result of this cheating incident. I was super depressed, literally would sob between classes, just an emotional dumpster fire. And then I came home for Christmas, like 15 pounds lighter or whatever it was. And on Christmas day, it was just me and my mom. My sister was with her boyfriend at the time. And so my mom and I were doing Christmas alone and, you know, I was fucking merry and bright. I had Christmas music on. I was wearing red. I was feeling cute. It was 78 degrees outside because Los Angeles, I'm having a great time. And then our apartment buzzer rang and without asking who it was, I pushed the button and let in who I assumed was one of my friends bringing presents or like hot goss, because that was my other favorite thing on Christmas was friends coming over to dish the hot goss. So when this mystery visitor knocked on the door, I just like bounced across the living room, threw open the door. But then standing there is this fucking dude who cheated on me, cradling a present in his arms. So of course I'm stunned, right? But I'm also like, okay, you fuck. Here you are on Christmas day here to beg for forgiveness. You're bringing me a gift as if that would quell my fury in any way. And I'm standing there filled with rage, but also like this secret pleasure that he's come back to grovel. And then all of a sudden he says, hi, is your mom here? And before I could respond, my mom the same mom to whom I had relayed the minutia of this dude's cheating scheme in real time, the mom who'd witnessed my emotional collapse by, by which I mean, she one time found me hunched in the back of a closet sobbing, which is like generally not a chill sign. Also the mom who, though she'd had no one else in the house to distract her from doing so had not once mentioned to me in the course of the day the day being Christmas day that my cheating, lying, CD thieving ex, that they'd fucking had a conversation somehow and that she'd invited him over for Christmas. And she just comes bounding up behind me and says to him, come in, Merry Christmas. And he walks in and they fucking hug right next to me. And I'm just standing there frozen. And when he hands her the gift, she says, oh, this is for me. Wait, I have something for you too. She'd fucking gotten him a gift. And they walk off together into the living room and I just quietly close the door. So here's the thing. You're probably thinking that that's where this horror story ends, but not so, <laughs> not so. After about 10 minutes of standing awkwardly in the kitchen, like fucking slicing jelly or whatever I was doing in an attempt at like <sighs> pretending like I didn't actually want to just like hop, hop off a roof or I mean, like really just trying to pretend like everything was cool. I finally just go upstairs and cry into a pillow for like, you know, a hundred years. And when I heard him leave, which by the way, was after a while I decided I was just like, okay, Christmas is fucking canceled. And I'm going to my friend's house to drink beers in his garage and cry. So I walk down the stairs and I stand in front of my mom who was doing a crossword puzzle on the couch. And with this voice, brittle 
from teen sobbing, I say, mom, I just want to say that it really hurts my feelings that, you know, everything that happened between this person and me, and you still invited him over on Christmas and had a gift for him. And my mom looks up from her newspaper, stares me right in the eyes and says, wow, thanks a lot for ruining Christmas, Remy. So obviously that was really hard, but the hardest part was that this painful experience went on for years. In that moment, a deep trust was broken. And it came to a head a year later when I found out that she and he had been talking on the phone about once a week. When I called her out on it and told her, I was just like, yo, it's your fucking job as my mom to have my back. She responded with, Remy, you want me to hate people and I'm about love and accepting people. And I'm not going to drop to your level because you haven't figured out how to love people. And so I wanted to add that because there's an element of gaslighting that's involved in narcissistic behavior that makes you feel like you're the crazy one. And of course, I was still a teenager then, and it was easy to gaslight me. I didn't know how to say, dude, (laughs) there's a massive gap between expecting you to actively hate someone and expecting you not to invite them over on Christmas with a gift. But even if I had said that, I don't know how successful it would have been because the bottom line was that I was not the important factor in that situation. The important thing was that my mom felt seen and needed and appreciated by this young, attractive dude wanting her attention. And that was going to rank first. So that's one sort of look at what this can look like with my dad. The narcissistic abuse mostly involved bulldozing and rage. Everyone in the house had to walk on eggshells because you never knew what was going to set him off. I remember one time we were on a road trip and I had to pee. So we had to pull over and he raged at me because I had to pee. That's a great example. But the example that really comes to mind involves my younger brother. When my brother was maybe 10 or so, a friend of the family's was going to take him out to a movie And so he went to his room to get ready. And when he came out, he was wearing a button down shirt. that was a hand-me-down from someone a little older and it was a little big on him. And when my dad saw him in it, he absolutely flipped out. He started screaming at my brother, got right in his face, told him he was a piece of shit, but he was saying stuff like, you're a piece of shit. I love you, but you're a piece of shit. Like really screaming that and pointing his finger right between my brother's eyes. I was 16 or 17 at the time and had never had the courage to stand up for myself when it came to my dad, but I definitely was not okay with him talking to my brother that way. So I made a comment about the, as a, you know, sassy 16, 17 year old teen would about the fact that I found it hard to believe that my dad who wore sweatpants with holes in the ass was finding fault with a child putting on a big shirt which of course my dad didn't like. So he turned around and said that I dressed like a slut, which like, I didn't even care about that because I was so angry. But later he talked to my dad's girlfriend about it. And she came to me and said, you know, you really hurt your dad's feelings when you said that 
your dad doesn't have any money and you basically shamed him for being poor. <laughs> and it was such a mind fuck again, because no one was talking about the fact that my dad's behavior had deeply traumatized my brother. And it was infuriating to me. But the bottom line was, that's not what mattered in this um, narcissistic dysfunction, not to my dad and not to his girlfriend. What mattered was my dad and anyone who didn't fall in line was going to be punished in some way. And honestly, even those who did fall in line would be punished. I mean, my brother hadn't even done anything wrong, you know? So the abuse I think was more overt with my dad because it involved a lot of screaming and um, sort of meanness with my mom, it was more covert in part because it leaned into this manipulation and spiritual bypassing. So what has been helpful for me in my healing process? The most important thing for me in recovering from narcissistic abuse has been boundaries. I'm definitely not perfect with boundaries because um, that's one thing about growing up around narcissism or interacting with narcissists is they don't like for you to have boundaries. So I certainly wasn't raised learning about um, having personal limits or saying no, but I'll, I'll give one example that's more recent that I think is really helpful. A few years ago, I was going through a pretty bad depression. I'd been sexually assaulted by a friend just after moving to a new town where I didn't know anyone. And, um, it, I, I was spiraling pretty badly. And a few months after that, my mom wanted to come out and visit because she thought it would be warmer where I was than where she was. Neither one of us likes the cold at all, but it turns out it was cold where I was. So I started looking for Airbnbs in Phoenix, which is a couple hours away because it's way warmer there. And I found a really cute one. So I sent it to her and it had like a jacuzzi, which I thought would be really nice and blah, blah. It's warmer. And she just kept cutting it down, cutting me down, saying there was no way that Airbnb cost as little as it did. I probably, it probably had something wrong with it. I didn't know what I was doing, et cetera, et cetera. She was being pretty rude about my efforts to accommodate her. And finally, the day before she was supposed to fly out, I said, Hey, I'm not okay with the way you're treating me and the way that you're talking to me. And we need to talk about it before you fly out here. She refused to talk to me about it. She said she was too busy packing to pause and have a conversation. And I said, okay, in that case, you need to cancel your flight. And maybe we can try again when it feels good for both of us. That took major courage and serious boundaries. And thank God I had a therapist at the time to guide me through it. But I have gotten to a point in my recovery where I understand that I have an inner child. I have actually many <laughs> inner children inside me. Um, and that inner child often feels scared and sad and neglected. And I am her mother now, you know, these other people who were at one time in charge of me are no longer in charge of me. Now I'm in charge of me. And it's my job when that inner child um, is like, Hey, I, I really don't want this person to come out and, and, um, be in my space where I'm not going to feel safe. And so it then becomes my job to say something to protect her no matter what. And when I think about it like that, it's a lot easier for me to set boundaries. When I think about that inner child inside me, 
The other thing I'll say is that when you're dealing with narcissism, gaslighting is just a big part of it. And in both of those examples with my parents, instead of taking responsibility for their actions, they made me the problem, which is super common with narcissism. Narcissists can't apologize. And when you're raised around that, or even if you experience that as an adult, you start to doubt yourself constantly. You start to think that your feelings don't make sense. And I want to take a minute to extend that to marginalize people in our culture too. We live in a culture that gaslights people of color, women, queer folks all the time. Like our culture tells these people that they're playing the victim card, that they brought abusive experiences on themselves, that they're crazy, they're too sensitive, that they don't deserve the rights they're asking for. We live in a society where the dominant culture, in my opinion, is narcissistic. They lack empathy for people whose experiences don't look like theirs. And so they gaslight those people in order to avoid taking responsibility for their role in the abuse. We see it with the police who literally murder black people and walk away without repercussion. We see it with rape culture, blaming women for being raped because, oh, she was drinking or, oh, she had on a sexy outfit or, oh, she went out alone. We see it when politicians prevent trans people from using bathrooms under the guise that they're protecting non-trans folks from being harassed when all statistics point to the fact that trans people are the ones whose lives are endangered when they enter a bathroom, not cisgendered people. I just want to point that out too, because so many larger entities, the government, the police, et cetera, gaslight people as a result of what I consider to be cultural narcissism. I was talking to a girlfriend the other day who had very recently started dating someone who was just not making time for her at all, but she was afraid to say that to him because she didn't want to seem like she was being too much. And I was like, damn, as women, we've been so gaslit around having absolutely healthy and normal expectations that we date someone who's respectful with our time. Like as women, you feel like you can't ask for that because if you do, you'll be told you're the problem. You're crazy. You're too much. And then you start to believe it. And that is narcissistic abuse. The dominant culture, in this case, cis het men, will often disrespect you. And then if you say something about it, they make you the problem. That scenario with my friend is obviously a small thing in comparison to an unarmed person being shot to death because they're black. And then the fucking papers say something insane like, man with shoplifting record shot in courageous police effort or, you know, whatever the fuck. But I think they're all examples of how so many of us are navigating narcissistic structures all the time. And by the way, I do also think it's important to say that I'm not um, suggesting that every single police person is a narcissist or that every single cis het man is a narcissist or every single politician. But fuck, you know, it's rough out there. These are structures that are in place. So even if you don't have narcissistic parents or a partner with NPD, if you fall into a marginalized category, you experience this structural version of narcissism. Okay, John, how are you doing over there? I'm good. I'm just taking in all the things you're saying. There's so much in there. And okay. I'm also just so glad that you led with the difference between the traits and the full-blown personality disorder. Yes. Yes. Okay. Awesome. Cool. Because I have, I have so many questions about all of this and I'm so excited to unpack it with you. So let's dive into our first question. My 
the first thing I was just thinking is like, we should just kind of get some foundational clarity. Like what are red flags to look out for, regardless of the type of relationship, whether it's a partner or boss or parent, they're just like, hi, this is narcissistic behavior. Beware. Totally. Totally. Um, well, I also ha- kind of have to lead with a disclaimer that um, I kind of want to caution against people hearing some or identifying some of these traits in people around them and being like, oh, they're a narcissist. Right. Totally. You know, like, yeah, usually when I'm assessing, um, I want to get like a fuller picture of things. And what I look out for is a whole constellation of traits. Okay. Yeah. But I can name a few of them. Um, so definitely what we see is a lack of empathy and inability to recognize the needs and feelings of others. Um, a real difficulty taking accountability and that manifests as a real sensitivity to criticism or anything that feels like challenging their behaviors. Mm. And they use a whole host of manipulative defenses to protect them from having to take that accountability. Mm. You know, that can be like passive aggressiveness, gaslighting, which you've mentioned a lot. It's such a big part of their arsenal of defenses Um, minimizing their own behaviors, which can be a form of gaslighting, public shaming and smearing others, Mm, um, smear campaigns. Yes. And that's a way to control the narrative to their captive audiences. And that further protects them from having to take accountability. Mm. Um, We see a lot of self-absorption, which causes the relationship to feel really asymmetrical and one directional. Mm. Um, it's as if their stuff and their feelings just take up all of the space and there's just no space for the other person's needs. Mm, um, totally. Yeah. There's a lot of entitlement um, and inflated views of themselves. And I'm so glad you mentioned the difference between grandiose and covert narcissism. Um, there's also other subtypes like, um, malignant narcissists who derive a lot of pleasure from seeing others in pain. Um, yeah. Communal narcissists, which we see a lot in like religious and spiritual communities, like guru type of guru types, um, you know, where they have this real image that they uphold of doing good. Um, but maybe behind the scenes, they can be pretty nasty and, um, just very questionable in their character. Wow. Okay. So, so probably cult leaders fall under that. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Interesting. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. But really underlying all these defenses, when you really zoom out and look at things from a distance, you can usually see that beneath all the image and the self-inflation and the defenses is a real sense of shame and inadequacy and low self-esteem. So these defenses are really guarding the gates from anybody seeing their low self-esteem and shame and inadequacy. That really checks out. That really checks out with the people in my life for sure. Okay. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. That is so helpful. I'd never even heard of communal narcissists, but it makes so much sense. Um, Okay. There's a lot of material. This is my next question. There's a lot of material about what it looks like to partner with a narcissist and what that healing process looks like. But can you talk some about like the, like what the core wounds are for people who are raised by narcissistic parents? And also this is like a side question and maybe we can get to this later, but like, is there 
that you know of, um, like an uptick, like if you were raised by narcissists, is it more likely that you'll partner with them? Mm. Um, but first, yeah, this question about like, what are the core wounds when you are raised around narcissism? Totally. I mean, I think one of the biggest differences between the effects from partners versus parents is that with parents, the abuse occurs over such a prolonged period of time, but especially during really formative stages of development for people. Mm. So it can really profound, profoundly shape their views of themselves and the world at a really early age. And that can set the stage for more traumatizing experiences, mm. um, such as like when people have really low self-esteem um, because they've been criticized and shamed so much, it can make them really vulnerable to bullying at school mm. um, because bullies just suck and look for people who have these vulnerabilities and go right in right. knowing that they have trouble advocating for themselves or maybe feel like they don't deserve protection. Right. Or if these are people that have been told repeatedly by their parents that it was their fault somehow, mm. um, people can be more prone to feeling alone or alienated from their peers, or they can stay in abusive or exploitative uh, friendships and relationships, just like you said. Mm. Um, people can also be more vulnerable to substance use challenges to manage their emotional difficulties. Right. Um, so when it comes to parental narcissistic abuse, there's bound to be emotional abuse. Sometimes there's physical abuse and there's bound to be emotional neglect. And these things result in a number of things like, like I mentioned, low self-esteem, tendency toward guilt and shame, um, but also perfectionism is mm. what I see a lot when I'm supporting people recovering from narcissistic abuse. Wow. Um, yeah, young people just learn to believe at an early age um, because of the inconsistency in the ways their narcissistic parent views them, um, that if only they can become more perfect, they can avoid or lessen the harmful behaviors and not have to feel the pain that results oh my God. from it. Wait, I have to T.O. and tell you, so um, I mentioned that uh, I started out talking about that cheating incident. Mm -hmm. And when that happened, and I mentioned also that I, um, as a result, I became anorexic. I stopped mm -hmm. eating mm -hmm. and my thought process very clearly in my mind was, this is my fault. If I had been prettier, this wouldn't have happened. Mm -hmm. And prettier in those days meant thinner. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, okay, right this is my fault. I need to be thinner. I need to stop eating. And I just started starving myself and it never, I never, this is so wild. I never made the connection between mm. narcissistic abuse and perfectionism. And that's mm. fascinating. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. It can give people more of a sense of security it's something to fall back on right. when the parents can be so inconsistent, you know, when they are um, in line with the parent's agenda, you know, or really pleasing the narcissistic parent, then they're all of a sudden good. Right. And it's just so easy to be seen as not good enough right. or bad. Um, you know, so the belief that if only I am more perfect, I can, I can at least kind of have 
more of a sense of control and predicting how I'm going to be seen. Mm. But it sets people up for this kind of binary of either being perfect or feeling like they're failing. And this can lead to some really distressing internal conflicts or tendencies toward anxiety um, because people who struggle with perfectionism often feel kind of paralyzed and stuck because they might need to strive for something, but if it doesn't feel likely they're going to achieve something close to perfection, they may not want to try or may become just really overwhelmed with anxiety about it. And perfectionism also sets people up for self-doubt, like persistently. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Whoa. And so do you think that, do you see um, a pattern around like, oh, if someone is raised in a narcissistic home with narcissistic parents, that they then often find themselves with narcissistic partners? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it it kind of happens from what I understand, like a number of ways, for example, like there are just some relationship dynamics that feel way more normalized and way more familiar to people right. who have developed in these types of environments. So for example, people might be so familiar with people pleasing and eggshell walking like they might just believe that this is just a normal part of romantic relationships or friendships. Um, Sometimes people might have a sense of, you know, I couldn't really master this with my parent. So maybe I can learn to master it here um, with this other person who has very similar traits. But the thing when it comes to narcissism is that it's very unlikely these people will change. Mm they're going to have to want, they're going to have to a acknowledge that they have these limitations and that is already a huge hurdle right Right. there because they have so many defenses. They don't want to confront that. They don't want other people to see that. Um, so, and another thing is that people who have been raised by someone with traits, um, just might have a really hard time recognizing the red flags. Mm, Yes. Totally. They, I think that happens in several ways. Like a, it can be so normalized, like a lot of these harmful behaviors. Um, Another thing though, is that the narcissistic parent gaslights their children so much, and this trains their children to distrust their internal experiences like as a reflex, you know, right. it's always like, oh, maybe I'm wrong about this. Oh maybe my God. Yes. Maybe I'm yes. being too sensitive. Right. <gasps> so um, there can be this way that people might start to clue in on some red flags, but then just kind of like discount it and kind of gaslight themselves. Oh my God. Yes. I, I can, I deeply, deeply relate to that. And um, it makes me what everything you're talking about sort of makes me think about this experience that I had, um, just like, okay. (laughs) A couple of years ago, I found an old photograph that a friend had taken in my high school bedroom when I was like 15 or 16. And I had completely forgotten about this, but there, what I had painted something and put it on my wall and And then, you know, probably threw it away when I went to college and never thought about it again until I saw this photo, but it was this painting on my wall 
that I had done of a girl um, who had like her eyes were open really, really wide. Like she was terrified, but there was someone's hand coming out from nowhere over her mouth, covering her mouth. Mm. And, you know, like, uh, I was a pretty sensitive kid in high school, like wrote poetry, you know, listened to Fiona Apple crying the things that you do when you're, um, a teenager often. But when I saw that photo, I was like, what, having learned what I have, um, more recently learned around narcissism and the way that I was raised, it was, it, this sense came back to me all of a sudden of having to swallow my truth all the time and never be able to, um, not be able to have big emotions, Mm -hmm. not be able to, uh, a big thing that would come up is if I would tell my mom that I was upset with her about something, her response would always be, you're attacking me and I don't deserve this. Mm -hmm. So it was like, you don't Remy, you don't get to have a voice Mm -hmm. here. And it doesn't matter that your feelings are hurt because I'm the one who matters. And so there was this intense, like, um, this depression going on around feeling so unseen and so not so like I was only worthy of love if I was, um, if I had this like sycophantic behavior where I was just basically like, yay to my Mm -hmm. mom and my dad Mm -hmm. all the time. Mm -hmm. And it, yeah. And it really was like, but because, um, there was no conversation around. It's not like at school, people were like, this is narcissistic behavior and here's what to look Mm -hmm. out for. I couldn't, there was, I had no way of articulating what was wrong. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't really, I was just like, I'm so fucking sad. And I'm so, I feel so alone. There was like a deep loneliness because there was nowhere to go where I could be loved for being angry and heartbroken and, um, yeah. And, and yeah. And like pissed off specifically at someone who was supposed to be parenting me and and modeling that like I mattered, you know, that it just like what it wasn't happening. So what you're talking about really, really resonates. And, um, and I did kind of want to ask, cause I know I, because I have narcissism, um, it, you know, narcissistic, I, I don't know if my parents are NPD or where they are on the scale, but, um, there are narcissistic traits for sure. But I, I do also kind of want to ask a little bit about, um, people with, who have partnered with narcissists. And um, I'm just curious if you have thoughts around, if you're starting to realize that you have partnered with a narcissist, um, how to, how to, how to support yourself in the process of, of thinking about leaving, because I know mm-hmm. that's, it's really hard to do. Yes. Yes. Well, um, I recently finished this book by Dr. Romani. It's called, should I stay or should I go? And it's about exactly that. And she really validates and normalizes, like not everyone can even afford to leave these types of relationships. You know, sometimes there's just too much at stake. Um, there may be children involved. 
Um, there may be a complicated financial situation. So not everyone can afford to leave. So the book offers a lot of really helpful tools and strategies about if you do decide to stay, like what are the different ways you can emotionally and psychologically protect yourself? Um, I can summarize it as she talks a lot about really managing your expectations of your partner with, with traits because it's so easy to fall into this rescue fantasy. You know, it's like, if only I kind of bend myself this way, you know, then they'll love me more. Or if I love them more, maybe I can help them heal their wounds and help them access more empathy and compassion. Um, Or like, I just have to try harder and be more perfect so that I can improve the relationship. You know, it's, that actually is such a trap. So she talks about like really trying to learn to identify when that rescue fantasy is getting the best of us and really unlearning it and just having a realistic expectation. It's like, all right, this person is not going to let any kind of criticism or need through. So what do I do with that? Knowing that there's no way to get through to them. So then it's like, okay, I need to get my emotional needs met elsewhere, or I need to have other safe spaces of people who really see me and validate me and my experiences um, can really support me because I'm not going to get that with my partner. Wow. Oh, that's so good. And, and yeah, I mean, I, I certainly have tried <laughs> to partner with nar- nar- people who at least were exhibiting narcissistic behavior. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and I completely relate to that trap that yes. God, it's, it is such a mind fuck because you really think that there's something, there's like a magical, um, key that if only you could access it. Yes. Yes. Well, what makes it so complicated is that it can be like, it, it's not always so black or white, right? Like mm-hmm. sometimes there are some good moments and sometimes there are some good qualities and traits in this partner. Sometimes they leave crumbs of care and affection and it's just enough to keep that hope alive. Yes. Oh, yes. Yes. Settling for the crumbs is mm-hmm. such, I'm sure that, I mean, that could be its own trait of, um, people raised with narcissistic parents, mm-hmm. you know, settling mm-hmm. for the crumbs. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, that is so real. Um, okay. And I also wanted to talk about this idea that I, I brought up this idea about marginalized people living in a culture of narcissism and being gaslight by these structures. Um, you know, I want to hear your thoughts about that. And I want to hear like, how do we take care of ourselves when narcissism is part of the culture? Totally. It totally is part of the culture. And we see that people who have these traits often get rewarded and um, it gets reinforced and they find themselves in more powerful quote unquote positions in this racist capitalistic world. Totally. Um, And I just want to validate this one is really tough because when it's systemic, the effects can be so much bigger and so much damaging, especially on a structural level, you know, such as denying the right for trans people to safely use the bathroom. You know, that is like a real structural barrier 
um, in people's lives. So it's tough. It's tough. And like, I don't have all the answers, but um, I think that some things can really overlap here between the cultural narcissism and caring for oneself while in a narcissistic relationship, Mm. you know, such as the need to find these safe affirming spaces Um, It's just so important to have a space where people can really challenge the gaslighting and be like, no, you're not the one with the distorted view of what's happening here. Like your, your gut is onto something. Mm. Um, It's so important to have people who understand gaslighting, especially on a cultural and systemic level. Um, And people who can reflect our strengths back to us. Um, in spite of all the negative messaging about like, oh, it's our fault. Oh, we're sensitive. Um, oh, we're being too needy. Um, we really need people to be like, no, you are inherently worthy. Um, yeah. And I also think, of course, like finding mental health care is super important, um, especially in navigating all these confusing messages and barriers from cultural narcissism. Um, yeah, I think that's what I can say about that for now. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. And thank you for, um, drawing the parallel between being in the culture of narcissism and being in a narcissistic relationship. Cause it really is sort of like you're in the narcissistic relationship that you can't leave, <laughs> Mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. exactly, I guess. Yeah. And I guess like the powerful thing is you can, I, I think maybe the first step is just knowing that that's the case, like knowing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that it's, um, yeah, that, that, that this is narcissistic yes. and, and that, finding that, people who get that. And yeah. See it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, cause I think what you were talking about before around when, because it's not just like, when it's in the culture, it's not just like you've partnered with the narcissist. It's also like you were raised by the narcissist because we are raised in these cultures. Mm -hmm. And so this is like the air that we breathe and we Mm -hmm. often don't know, you know, what we're dealing with. And we take, we accept certain things as being normal when they're really not, and they're really not healthy. And, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. and here's another thing that makes that really challenging. I heard this described in um, what you shared about the story with your brother and um, the the hand-me-down shirt that narcissistic people often find a captive audience to control the narrative, right? And these people are called in the field, quote unquote, flying monkeys. They're basically people who are kind of like under the spell of the narcissist and will jump to defend this narcissist with their limited information of what's actually happening, they have basically kind of like drank the Kool-Aid and they really believe the narcissist version, their distorted version of what's actually happening. And when it is cultural narcissism, it's as if the flying monkeys are everywhere. There are so many people out there who are upholding these skewed values and we'll see that with the, the politicians, the celebrities, um, people who harass others online. Like, it's, it's harder to get away from the flying monkeys. 
and when it's on a cultural and systemic level. And that's why it's so important to find your people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually had some other ideas of things that could help. Um, you know, I think in addition to all that, it's also just really important to tend to your own needs and strengthen your own sense of self. Mm. And I think that's going to really help challenge all the gaslighting. Um, for example, like really making sure that you're tending to your self-care and it's not always easy uh, or it's not always feasible to make that a top priority even for people who are especially impacted by systemic oppression or have multiple intersections of marginalized identities. It's just, it can be a lot harder for people to really care for themselves. Um, But finding some way to do it as much as possible, like some is going to be better than none. Right. Um, And that can also look like finding outlets, like hobbies or um, safe, supportive relationships, like being witnessed and gotten by others. Sometimes that's through creative expression and artistry. Um, so yeah, those were some other ideas that came up for me as well. Yeah. Oh my God. That's so good. And I'm fascinated by this idea of flying monkeys because it sounds to me like in my story that I brought up around my dad, that his girlfriend, mm-hmm. um, is a flying mm-hmm. monkey. Cause like, yeah. she was like, you really hurt your dad's feelings. Yes. And I was like, what? Yes. And made it about shaming him for being poor and totally missing the issue here. Right. Which to me is, was like so shocking. And like I said, infuriating because Mm -hmm. I was like, how are you not seeing Mm -hmm. this um, egregious issue in front of us? Like, how Mm -hmm. are you choosing? And that it's, I'm so glad that actually I used that example because, and, and that you brought in this other factor of the flying monkeys, because when we're talking about the cultural thing, I think that particular incident is really clarifying in terms of what it can look like on a more, um, mm-hmm. on a bigger scale, mm-hmm. right? Like uh, these people who there is so, like, um, dur- while people are rioting over, systemic oppression and um racism and just and the and the literal like genocide of black people you have uh, these other people who are like stop breaking windows <laughs> <It's> like <laughs> what right, right. what are you talking about mm-hmm. yeah yeah mm-hmm. oh wow that is really helpful and i do also kind of want to say to your point about the gaslighting having people reflect back um your truth and trusting your, and you trusting your own gut, that has been so key. And actually I'll, I'll bring in the conversation that I talked about earlier with my girlfriend who, um, with a girlfriend of mine who was trying to date this guy. And, um, when this was happening and he was blowing her off and blowing her off, she screenshot the, text message that he was sending her and sent it to me and was like, I don't know what to say. Cause like, we don't know each other super well and this is new, but he keeps doing this. And like, so essentially what she was saying was like, this behavior is not okay with me, but I don't feel like I have a right to say it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, uh, and, and, and I've been through that so many times in the dating scene. And I think women, um, navigating, 
dating and navigating like patriarchal structures around what's expected of women and how to behave so that you're seen as attractive and desirable, which is like the only currency that women have been given for like, (laughs) you know, centuries. Um, Mm -hmm. All of a sudden we're like, oh, we don't want to be mad because if we're mad, then you won't like us and you'll, you'll think we're not hot. And um, yeah, I find, I just told her, I was like, do you want to date someone who won't give you the time of day, you know, or like, I was like, if you say to him, Hey, this isn't working for me. And I need someone who can actually like make time for me while I'm getting to know them. um, One of two things will happen. He will exit the situation because he's not going to have time to get, you know, for you while you're trying to get to know him, or he's going to be like, Oh shit, I, I need to step it up. Mm-hmm. But either way, you're, you're going to be in a better situation. And so anyway, that is what she ended up doing. And he did exit the situation. And of course that was sad for her, but I was like, yes. And now you're, you've cleared space for someone who actually can mm-hmm. show up, but it is, it is that like moment where, you know, something's not right, but you feel like you're not supposed to say it because, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. like, it's an outside source might think, might think a certain way about you, but it's, yes. it's, that, it's that process of reclaiming what's true for us and knowing that even if we have been abused to the point of feeling like we can't actually lean into what feels true, there's still a part of us that is connected to that. And that even if it feels scary in it, and it's, it's not a strong voice, but it's there, you know, like finding ways to connect with that. Yes. Yes. And I I think another thing though, that makes it really challenging for people to, to even think about leaving relationships like that is in more severe cases of people who've been abused, uh, from narcissistic parents, um, they really may not have very many supports in their lives. They may not have had many, if at all, any experiences of safety and security in relationships. They may have also internalized a lot of messages around um, worthlessness or you know, feeding into low self-esteem. So it actually creates a lot of fear to even think about leaving a relationship because they may have parts of them that are so afraid of possibly ending up alone forever. And these parts have been shaped by all the constant messaging about like, you know, essentially some form of like, people are not going to like you. You're never good enough, whatever it is. It all feeds into this fear of being alone. And that can also keep people stuck in relationships like these. The narcissistic partner may even reinforce these messages too about, um, you know, like you'll never find someone as good as me, or you don't even realize how good you have it. Right. Right. Or, who's going to want you after you leave me, whatever it is. Um, there can be all sorts of things that also keep people stuck. Yeah. I actually, um, I actually know people whose partners have told them exactly that. So Mm -hmm. that's, um, that's a really, that's also a really, that I feel like that's a more overt red flag, but it's like, I think when it's not, overt if you've been raised to believe that you're worthless right like Mm -hmm. it just feels really true 
you know mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. i probably i i'm i suck so i probably won't be able to find anyone and- yes that actually is a really good point because it's not always about emotional abuse it can also be emotional neglect the mm. absence of enough attention and care and warmth that can also kind of lead young people to believe oh it's because of something about me it's because (gasps) I'm not enough of something and that's why my mom for example like always becomes disinterested when I talk about myself or whatever it is you know it can also be the absence of the attention and the attunement oh my god that is blowing my mind yes well, sorry to make this about me. <laughs> <laughs> it's your um, podcast. I, well, yeah, but man, I, and I hope that this is helpful for other people, but yes, I certainly relate to that. And I, and it's so helpful that you said that. Cause I think it is such an important distinction. Um, yeah, this whole thing around neglect and these moments where we try to share ourselves Mm -hmm. with our parents and they're just not interested. Like I have Mm -hmm. a a story around, um, (laughs) I certainly leaned into the perfectionism stuff, especially in high school. And like, you know, I was, um, I was in all the AP classes. I had like a four point, I think I had a 4.2 GPA. I was the captain of the dance team. I was the president of the senior class. Like I was, I was, fucking on that perfectionism trajectory big time and um and my dance like dance was a is, was a place where perfectionism really came out for me uh ballet is like a very perfecting mm-hmm. you know it's very strict mm-hmm. um and and i I was on these teams that would go to competitions and it's about winning. And, you know, it's not like, Oh, we're all winners here. It's like, Nope, someone's going to take that trophy and they were perfect. And you were not, um, it's, you know, that sort of messaging. And so anyway, dance was a place where I really leaned into that perfectionism. And I really wanted my dad to witness my dancing because then he could see to me. I, at the time I thought that was the key, right? Mm -hmm. Like he, my dad is very talented. He's a musician. And, um, I thought like, if I could show him that I was talented too, you know, that would be the thing that would make him think I was cool and, you know, want to spend time with me or whatever. And, um, he lived in a different state. And so one summer, I remember I went out there and I brought my video VHS, because this was the nineties of my dance recital. And, uh, his girlfriend was like, okay, so do you want to watch Remy's, uh, dance recital now? And he was like, no, (laughs) (laughs) just like turned on football. That was that. And never, we like never brought it up again, Mm. like never asked to see it. And I was so crestfallen. And, um, that's obviously, and and like all my experiences, these are unique experiences, but I hope that these are moments that like trigger, um, memories for other people so they can start to put together like, Oh yeah. in this moment, that's what that was for me. Mm -hmm. I hope it's helpful. I share some resources before we go. Oh yes, please go ahead. Okay. This is for anyone listening who wants just more resources to get more clear about what to look out for, how to understand the effects and also healing. So I really recommend looking into Dr. Romani. 
She is such an expert in the field and has so much material out there. You can literally search her on YouTube. She puts out like a video a week or something like that. I've watched her videos. She's great. Yes, she is so clarifying and just so easy to follow. Um, And so many subtopics on narcissism. You can also search for podcasts um, that she's done. There's quite a number out there. Um, There's also some books I want to recommend. One that has been so personally um, powerful for my own healing journey was recommended by a colleague and a really close friend of mine. It's called Mothers Who Can't Love Mm. by Susan Forward. They talk about lots of different um, presentations of mothers who can't love and different types of narcissistic mothers and different boundaries you can try before you get to the point where you just decide to cut them off completely. Wow. Um, Another good one is called Will I Ever Be Good Enough by Carol McBride. And I also really recommend the book called Recovering from Emotionally Immature Parents by Lindsay Gibson. Um, She not only describes um, different traits you'll see in emotionally immature parents so you can recognize it, but also what you can do about it, what the different types of boundaries uh, can be. Uh, oh my God. Thank you so much. Like writing all of those down. (laughs) Oh, that sounds important. Um, and I, and while we're talking about it, there's been a great book for me that's related, but not, uh, directly related, but there's a great book called stop walking on eggshells, which Mm. is about, um, having a loved one who has borderline personality disorder, which is different, but BPD does involve narcissism. Mm-hmm. So um, I wanted to recommend that in case anyone sort of has made a connection that the narcissism they've experienced from a loved one is rooted in BPD. That's a really great book that I recommend that also talks about red flags and also like gets very specific about setting boundaries and how to do it in these situations. If if you want to um, be in relationship with mm. uh, someone who has BPD. Um yeah. Oh my God. Thank you so much, John. I have loved this conversation Same. so much. Oh my Same. God. Almost wish there was more time, but thank you so much for having me. Oh my Such God. Such an honor. So, oh, you're so welcome. And maybe we can do like a follow-up. Sweet. Yeah. Hit me oh. up. Okay. Yeah. I love that. And for the rest of you, enjoy the party, baby. Bye.